just last week that we had the privilege of Nissen, and it was supposed to be Joanna. Joanna was sick, but I think a lot of us saw her throughout the week. But Nissen was able to share, and specifically he was able to share about the work of the ministry that's going on in Dubai, uh, shared a number of evangelistic stories, uh, getting the gospel to Muslims that have otherwise no opportunity to hear of Jesus. And then as well, uh, he was able to, to preach the word very effectively. I think he's, he's just very gifted in reading, explaining, and then applying the word of God. I was just greatly encouraged, and I'm sure you all were too. Uh, one thing I did want to mention is Emily and I had a private conversation with Nissen and Joanne at one point during their stay here. And so as far as their process and raising support, uh, they're still about $20,000 short of where they need to be for their annual budget. And interestingly enough, while we were talking with him, uh, he had said that, that last year, Joanna's father, uh, he's a businessman in Dubai, uh, had been swindled by his business partner. And so his partner uh, took everything. So he lost all of his salary, all of his uh, medical care, all of his housing, all of his retirement, all of everything. And so Nissen and Joanna, you know, took them into their place, and around the same time, they lost 60% of their support. And so Nissen said that, you know, he has never prayed so fervently and so passionately than during that time. He said, admittedly, there are a number of panic attacks along the way, but the Lord saw them through it. And so, again, just an encouragement to you all, I think we can all attest to just the gospel-centeredness of Nissen and Joanna to the faithfulness of their ministry. It's very Bible-centered. And to his integrity and to his character, I've known Nissen for five years. Uh, we as a church have known them for a while. And I'm telling you, uh, there's, there's not a better use of your money uh, than to support missionaries that are sharing the gospel to where they are in the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, em and I have prayed about it, and uh, we uh, were able to, to tell with them even this past week that we're going to join them uh, uh, on their support team and partner with them. Well, uh, the sermon that we're looking at this morning and the passage we're looking at is Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18. So if you would, um, probably you already have it open. Let's go ahead and read that. So Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. And Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the work of Jesus Christ directly preceding this passage that we're going to be looking at today is this great exaltation, this great uh, doxology and sense 
of Jesus Christ and of his humility and, and the way in which he showed and demonstrated his humility by taking on flesh. He being the all-powerful God of the universe took on flesh and humbled himself in the form of a man. And then even more so, he humbled himself to the point of death, to, to death even on a cross. And so, Lord, uh, we are thankful for the example of Jesus, and I pray that we would follow his example. Lord, I'm thankful for the way in which we see this example living out through Nissen and Joanna. We're so thankful to have them as, as missionaries to, to support and to encourage and to partner with in the gospel. And Father, I pray that uh, you would continue to spur us on as a church to pray for them, to care for them, to reach out to them, to email them, to encourage them, and to support them financially. I do pray that you would bring in the rest of the financial support that Nissen and Joanna need uh, to stay on the field, to continue in their ministry. Such a God-glorifying, such a good ministry. Lord, I pray for us as a church. Um, I pray for, for Lee as he is on sabbatical. I uh, just got an email update from him recently. And it sounds as though the Lord is, is really using this to bring him some refreshment, uh, to rejuvenate him. Uh, Lord, there was a lot of uh, just emotional and I think even spiritual fatigue. And it's good to hear that uh, he, is, uh, is, he is in many ways getting well rested. And uh, Lord, we pray that he comes back ready and comes back excited and zealous to do good works. I pray for his family during this time that it would just be a special time of unity and, and a special time of fellowship with his family. Lord, I pray uh, for our time this morning. God, I pray that you would help us to, to understand this passage better. Lord, at the end of the day, one of the, the main points of, of our preaching and teaching here is to read the text, explain the text, and to apply it appropriately. And so, Lord, I trust that you will do that. I trust, God, that, that you will help us to, to listen, help us then to obey, and help us to properly apply. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you direct us to truth, illuminate the Word of God for us this morning. And it's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. Well, there's three points that I want us to get from our text this morning, and point one is always obey. Point two, work out your own salvation. Point three, do everything without complaining or arguing, and I'm sorry, there's four points. And point four, live as a sacrificial light to the believers around you and to the world. So point one, always obey. Point two, work out your own salvation. Point three, do everything without complaining or arguing. And point four, live as a sacrificial light to the believers and also to the world around you. Well, it was just last week that, or I'm sorry, two weeks ago now that, that James preached on chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And again, as I mentioned in my prayer, that this is concerning the incarnation of Christ. And so Paul is giving an example of humility, specifically giving the example of Christ and how he took on flesh. And though he was fully God, humbled himself and became a physical man. And then also, to even further still, Christ demonstrated his humility by undergoing a uh, humiliating and shameful and even degradeful death, degrading death on the cross. But Paul didn't just stop there. Then Paul continues 
And then he said, because of Christ's sacrificial obedience and death, that God has exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, and that at the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so this brings us to our text, beginning in verse 12, and also to point number one, which is always obey. So look with me at verse 12. Paul writes, therefore. So again, when when you see a therefore, we need to ask ourselves, well, why is the therefore? Therefore. So Paul's connecting the preceding preceding section with verses 1 through 11, which pertain to Christ's humility and it's displayed through his incarnation and future exaltation over all creation. And so we, based upon that, therefore should do what? Well, based upon that, Paul says, therefore, continuing in verse 14, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Paul begins here with a term of endearment, something he does often in his writing. And he refers to the Philippians as his beloved. And he's encouraging him. And he says, as they have always obeyed, he said. So meaning that the Philippian congregation was a congregation that was marked by obedience. They were responsive to Paul's teaching. Paul evidently is referring back to his presence, meaning his time when he was with the Philippians face to face. So if you go back to Acts chapter 16, remember Paul, he goes to Macedonia, he's in Philippi, and he goes along the riverbank and he sees women praying and he shares the gospel with these women and the Lord does what? The Lord opens up Lydia's heart to believe. And then not just Lydia's heart, but her entire household. They believe, they're baptized, and then subsequently they are arrested for preaching the gospel and Paul and Silas find themselves in prison and then the Lord supernaturally intervenes, there's an earthquake, and so the gates are jarred open, all the prisoners' gates fling wide open, everyone can leave, and the jailer is so distraught because he knows that he is just going to be, he's probably going to be killed if all the prisoners escape on his watch. And um, he goes to grab a sword to, to kill himself. And he goes before the, uh, uh, Paul and Silas, and Paul and Silas come before him and they say, you know, stop. You know, he, he asks Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? And, and Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And so he believes. And his entire family believes. And so then after they are released from prison, they go back to Lydia's house. And now you've got Lydia's household, the Philippians' household, and maybe some other believers too, maybe some others that have heard the gospel through Paul or some of the other believers. And they're together in Lydia's house, and he's with them face to face. And Paul is probably doing something somewhat similar to what we do on a, during a shepherd group or, or during a, a Sunday morning. And he's just opening the word, and he's teaching them. And they were what? They were obedient to the word he taught. They obeyed. Paul said they always obeyed in his presence. And we should have the same kind of attitude as these Philippians. Let's be the kind of church like the Philippians that, quote, always obey. And so let's be honest. You know, there are some believers that just are plain unteachable. There are know-it-alls. You can't really disciple someone like that. Now, conversely, there are other people that, that respond so well to the word. A while back, we were at a shepherd group, and one of the moms was, was talking about a new neighbor that had moved in uh, next to them, really close to their house. And she had expressed how, you know, they're unbelievers, they're foreigners, they're going to be pretty needy, but there's maybe a little hesitancy, she was just honest, 
uh, that, you know, if you reach out to them, are they going to be at my, my house all the time? I mean, my house is a, a place where I can be protected, where I can rest, a time for my family. Um, and I don't want that to just be completely disrupted. And so what should I do? How should I, how should I relate to them? And then we discuss, well, you know, let's think through Jesus' words in Luke 14. In Luke 14, 12, Jesus said, he said to the man who had invited him, this man had invited him into Jesus' home, or invited him into his home for dinner. And he said, Jesus said, when you give a dinner or banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you and and in return pay you. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, as an aside here, said that's probably one of the most disobeyed passages in all of the Bible. But anyway, so, so we talked about this. We talked about, well, you know, what's kind of the more biblical response and, and how, we, how we think this through. And, you know, she, she was very responsive to that, open to it. And just the other night, uh, she was able to drop cookies off and a verse off and they've had a number of conversations with the family. And you see that it's just a change in the heart, a willingness to obey. So in the same way, as, as we come back to our text, Paul commends the Philippians because of their obedience. And not only in his presence, but he wants them also to be obedient in his absence. Remember, of course, that Paul is in Rome as he's preaching to the believers in Philippi. So again, point one is to always obey. And our second point is to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This command is given in verse 12. So if you look at the passage, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now before we get to the heart of this command, I'd like to just touch on a secondary point that I see within this passage. And that is, I think that evidently there was a temptation and that Paul sensed this in the Philippians and that being of an unhealthy dependence upon him. That Paul tells them to obey much more in his absence and also to work out their own, emphasis on own salvation. See, the Philippians can't grow in their sanctification vicariously through the Apostle Paul. Paul can't cause them or will them to become more holy. Paul had seen this sort of unhealthy man-centered dependence with the Corinthians. So if you remember the the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul rebukes the Corinthians for the divisions in the church. Remember how Paul said some followed Apollos, some followed Peter, some followed Paul? And there was a temptation in these Philippians, and I think there's, there's a temptation even for us today to become dependent upon man for our sanctification, dependent upon a teacher or maybe a a pastor. I recently heard one brother say to a pastor that, you know, I'm just feeling spiritually dry, and the reason I'm feeling spiritually dry is because of your preaching. And and there could be some truth to that, but at the same time, I mean, if your entire sanctification is solely dependent upon a 30 to 45 minute sermon that you hear on Sunday, uh, I mean, that's, that's just that's going to be deficient. It's, this, this is important preaching and teaching. God has given preachers and teachers to the church, and they are important, and we do need them. 
But that is just one aspect of our call to follow Christ. So the Philippian salvation was not dependent upon the Apostle Paul, and your salvation is not dependent only on a man or a teacher or, more specifically, Lee. We don't want to put that kind of pressure on Lee. That's, that's not his job to cause you or will you to be holy through 30 minutes of, or 45 minutes of teaching. So back to verse 12. Here the command is to work out your own salvation. So initially this sounds a bit troubling, doesn't it? So is Paul saying that we must work to obtain our salvation? Well, of course not. Well, first of all, we know that, that that's not even the words that Paul uses. So when you look closely at the words, Paul doesn't say work for your salvation or work toward your salvation or work at your salvation, but rather he says work out your salvation. So no one can work out his salvation unless God has first worked in him so that he would possess salvation. And elsewhere throughout Paul's writing, he is clear that salvation is by faith alone. Even in chapter 3 of Philippians, we'll get to this eventually, Paul declares that righteousness comes not from obedience to the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So hopefully we're all in agreement on that point, that this verse does not mean you know, we're to work at our salvation or to work toward obtaining salvation. But then what does it mean? Well, I think first it's important to, to understand what exactly Paul was referring to when he used this word salvation in this context. So the New Testament speaks of salvation in terms of justification, sanctification, and glorification. So you are justified, that is, you are declared righteous by God through the substitutionary work of Christ on the cross. You are rightly condemned and seen as guilty before a holy God because of your sin. All of us are in that situation but when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are justified once for all. It's a, it's a one-time event. You're never more justified tomorrow than you are uh, than when you first believed. And then there's sanctification. Sanctification, on the other, other hand, is a continuous process. It's a process going on within us, perfecting us to the image of Christ and purging and purifying the sinful nature within us. And then there's the ultimate state of glorification. This will occur when Christ returns and when we receive our new resurrected bodies and when we see Christ face to face. We will be freed from sin, Satan, and the flesh. And in this final state, we will be perfect. As Christ is perfect, we will be glorified. So salvation at least includes these three things. And so in a very real sense as Christians, we can say, I'm saved. I'm being saved, and I will be saved. And there are a number of texts in the New Testament that use this kind of language, and the tenses are always you know, a bit different, and that's why. And so it's important to have these three classifications of salvation in our mind as we come to verse 12, because if you interpret salvation here in verse 12 as justification, you're going, you're going to come to a very wrong conclusion. So what Paul has in mind here is not justification, but rather our sanctification, which ultimately will lead to our glorification. But again, I mean, does that still leave us a bit confused? I mean, it does me. I mean, what exactly would it mean then to work out your own sanctification? Well, what do we commonly say when we go to the gym? Or for those of us that, that go to the gym, 
Or, or when we go to exercise, well, we commonly say, I'm going to go work out. And so you're going to work out, while well, you're obviously going to work out your body, you're going to the gym, you're going to exercise. And this takes discipline, it takes effort, it takes energy. You have to will yourself to get off the couch, to get your rear into the gym and to actually work, or to get on the street and run, or whatever you do. You, you have to will yourself, and then you have to exert energy and effort to do it. And when, once you're done, you can say, oh, I just, I worked out. And I think in similar fashion, Paul is saying, you've received this great and glorious salvation, now work it out, exercise it, put time into it, energy and effort. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, 8, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is, value, is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So yes, going to the gym is, is of some benefit, as Paul says. <clears throat> so if you're ever looking for a, a kind of a command or a biblical reason to exercise, this may be it. But far more important is disciplining yourself for the purpose of godliness. You are to take the initiative. You're not to, as the, the, the common um, uh, cliche, let go and let God as if sanctification is some sort of kind of autopilot button that you press, you sit back, you relax, and you just let the Holy Spirit do all the work. No effort, no striving. It's not just a passive endeavor. But yet, conversely, we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. As Romans 8.13 says, Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. The Puritan John Owen wrote a book, an entire book on that one verse, Romans 8, 13, called The Mortification of Sin. And one of his, his most commonly known uh, quotes from that book is, you must be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So you must be killing sin or sin will be killing you. It's not a, just a passive endeavor. The Christian life is often described in terms of warfare. Paul says that we are we're soldiers for Christ. That we are to fight the good fight of the faith. Paul talks about beating his own body as, as, a, botter, as a boxer is throwing punches. And so it's something that we have to be taking the initiative. We have to be fighting. We have to be swimming up swim against the current, so to speak, because the world and the flesh and Satan are trying to bring us down. And so you have to fight. Now, if I stopped there, I would have just done a great disservice to the text. Because if you keep reading, verse 13 says, It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So everything I've said about taking the initiative and fighting sin, that's true. And you've got to fight. That's what verse 12 is saying. But at the same time, we also should be comforted and empowered by the reality that God is working in us. I mean, that's an amazing thought. That the almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing God of the universe is working in you. And he's doing that to conform you to the image of Christ. He's doing that to assist you and to move you along in your sanctification. And in this verse 13, we see that 
God works in us to do two things. So one, God works in us to will, and two, God works in us to work. So first, God works in us to will. I think all of us have had the experience of knowing we need to do something but just lacking the will to do it. Often, uh, for me, it's mowing the lawn. Like, I know I need to do it. I know I need to get out. It's probably going to rain tomorrow. I should do it today, but I just don't feel like it. And in the same way, I think we often lack the will to obey the commands given to us in Scripture. And Paul is telling us that it is God who gives us the will to obey. Sometimes we have such desire, I think, to follow Christ. And I feel that. But other times we have zero desire. So if God is the one who has the power to change our will, then we must do what? I think we need to then as a church corporately pray and plead with God to work in us to give us the desire and the will to follow him, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Pray for for others in this church. Pray for yourself. And secondly, we see that God works in us to do good works. Ephesians tells us that God even predestined the works that we are to do. So let us lean on God to see us through. Part of living out your purpose in life is to live out these good works that we've been called to. And so now, so we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, and it is God who works in and through us for his good pleasure. And then verse 14, we get to some practical examples of that. So look with me down to verse 14, which also leads us into our third point, that we are to do everything without complaining or arguing. So in verse 14, here Paul says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. There's no doubt that Paul had the Israelites in mind as he's writing these verses. Paul's phrase in verse 15 of a crooked and twisted generation is actually a verbatim quote from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 5. And here Moses is referring to the Israelites who are wandering in the wilderness and he refers to them as a crooked and twisted generation. And that was directly correlated to the grumbling and disputing of the Israelites. So again, if you remember, so a brief history of what was taking place with the Israelites. So they are enslaved by the Egyptians and they are brutally mistreated. And so they're calling out to the Lord for a redeemer, calling out to the Lord for salvation. And the Lord is gracious. And the Lord raises up a leader in Moses to deliver and to redeem his people from slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so God does that. And then shortly after they are led and and this exodus begins out of Egypt, they begin to complain to Moses. Almost immediately, just a couple days after they have seen these ten plagues, these miraculous works of God, in Exodus 14, 11 through 12, they say, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Have you done to, what have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. So again, God has just done these miraculous works. Ten miraculous plagues. And then he's, he's leading them out. 
And immediately they begin to grumble to Moses. Just mocking and insulting the living God. Talking about, oh, there's, are there, there are graves in Egypt. Why didn't you just let us die there? But the Lord had compassion and kindness. And he does what? He supernaturally parts the Red Sea. And yet, literally the next chapter, after God does this absolutely miraculous work of parting the Red Sea, they, they walk through on dry ground, and then the Lord destroys their enemy, by the way, decimating the, one of the most powerful armies in the ancient Near East. They, they never fully recovered from that. Even historically, historians will tell you that. And then the next chapter, literally, they begin to grumble to Moses because they wanted bread. And then you read the next chapter, and they grumble because... They wanted something more than bread. They wanted meat. And then they, they complain in the ensuing chapters. And if, even if you just type in, uh, say, like in a, a Bible search tool, grumbling, I mean, you'll see just several entries. And then in number 16, God punishes some of the people in the priesthood for, for disobeying the Mosaic law. And then the word says here in number 16, this is, uh, getting close to when they're getting ready to enter the promised land. Then it says, Then the people grumble against Moses and Aaron, saying that they were the ones who caused the death of the Lord's people. And then the Lord was furious. And through a number of plagues, and through the ground swallowing up those who were disobeying, and due to their incessant grumbling and complaining, the Lord slaughters them. Tens of thousands. And he does the same thing in Numbers 20 and Numbers 21. And so why do you think that, that God was so upset at their grumbling? Well, I think the Israelites were grumbling in essence because they didn't trust God. That, that they felt as though they knew better than God. And further still, that they were, that they were completely ungrateful for everything that God had done for them. There was no heart of gratitude, no thankfulness, but instead constantly wanting something better, constantly grumbling about their current circumstances that God had sovereignly ordained for them. They were bucking against the providential hand of God in their life. And as you read, and as, as Greg read for us earlier from 1 Corinthians 10, these Israelites, they serve as an example, as a warning to us to not follow their path of incessant grumbling and complaining. And so now Paul is saying to the Philippians, they were to do all things without complaining or arguing as they worked out their salvation with fear and trembling. God takes the sin of grumbling very seriously. And we too are to do things, and specifically we're to work out our salvation to the, and to the things to which the Lord has called us to do without a heart that is grumbling. So if there's a, a need that arises in the church and the Lord opens up an opportunity for you to meet it, praise God. But it doesn't honor the Lord if you're grumbling the whole time you do it. Or say a member is in dire straits and they're in need of emergent child care, and so they, they come and you know it's the right thing, they're, you know, they don't have any other options, the kids come to the house, and you do it, but the whole day... Maybe not even outwardly, but in your heart, you are grumbling. That's not pleasing to the Lord. Or maybe at work, 
Maybe one of your coworkers gets sick and you need to fill in, fill in for them and so you're working an extra shift and you're working more than you usually have to work and you agree to do it because it's your job, you have to, but you're grumbling the whole time. That doesn't please the Lord. We are called to do all things without complaining or arguing. So take inventory of your life. What are you complaining about? Has it become so ingrained in your way of life that you, you don't even notice it anymore? Ask your spouse. And then take note in your heart, even the rest of the day, as you're going through the day, take note of when you're complaining. And try to fight it by the, by the power of the Spirit. Oftentimes I think we're like the Israelites. I see this in my, my own life. I can think back to a time when, when I so badly just wanted a wife. And I wanted to get married, and so I was just, in many ways, just kind of grumbling and kind of complaining. Oh, Lord, why haven't you provided? I'm 25, 26, 27. I still haven't, you haven't provided a wife. And then the Lord supernaturally provides a wife, and I have one. And then, he, and then, and then now I'm in a situation where uh, I move, and I'm taking on a new job, and then there's something else that my heart starts complaining about. Oh, this job. I've got a wife. Thank you, God. But, but now this job, oh, it's just, oh, and just grumbling. And oftentimes, you know, I see this all the time in the, in the workplace, that the people have this, it's just human nature that the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. And so the current job that they have is nowhere near, nearly as good as, as the job that they could have. And so they just, they just want that job. And then say they get it, and then not, not too long, maybe a few weeks later, and then they're like, oh man, things were better, better at the, the previous job I had. We're to do all things without complaining or grumbling. And I mean, let's be honest too, I mean, no one wants to be around a negative whiner. That, that person that's passive-aggressive. That person that, that to your face, maybe, maybe you have to tell them something. Maybe there's a responsibility that they need to take care of. Maybe there's something that they need to do. Maybe there's even like a, a sin issue that you need to address in their life and you do it. And to your face, there's, okay, yeah. And they turn around and they just grumble. And sometimes they, they grumble to others. The Israelites serve as an example of what not to do. But instead, conversely, we are to be a people who are marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. We're to be a grateful and a thankful people. And who doesn't want to be around a bunch of people that are thankful and grateful? So not only does our passage teach us that we are to do everything without complaining or arguing, but it also teaches us uh, our final point, point four, which is we are to live as sacrificial lights to the believers, and to the world around us. So look with me. We'll give, begin in, in 14 again. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that he did not run in vain or labor in vain. Verse 15 tells us, that the means to becoming blameless and innocent believers is through what? Is through not complaining 
and arguing. And Paul wants us to be pure and holy Christians because why? Well, because, as verse 15 says, we are children of God. We need to live lives that are holy, that are worthy of his holy name. And there's also an evangelistic appeal here. For if we are blameless and innocent in our lives, then we will shine the light of Christ in the midst of an unbelieving world. And so one way to absolutely ruin your witness, I think, based upon this passage, is to be a continuous whiner and complainer. So at work, if you are the one that's always complaining about the new policy, always complaining about your hours, always complaining about your shift, always complaining about the work, complaining about management, they don't know what they're doing, complaining about the lazy coworkers that you have, if you're always complaining, you are not going to get a listening ear when you share your faith with them. You just won't. And you most certainly won't be living a life worthy of this holy God because we are children of God, verse 15 tells us. So if you want a listening ear, you need to live lives that are free from complaining and arguing. Now moving on to verse 16, Paul then exhorts the Philippians. He says, hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be, may be proud that he did not run in vain or labor in vain. And here Paul is saying to remain firm in the gospel. Don't walk away from the faith, but persevere. So that at the end of the age, as Paul gives an account to the Lord Jesus Christ on his judgment throne, to give an account for his work among the Philippians, he may be proud that they stood firm to the end. That his gospel ministry was in fact gold, silver, and precious stones, as he mentions in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians chapter, or 1 Corinthians 3. And that's what, that's what Paul's after. He's not after money or prestige in, in, in his current life. He wasn't after that. He was looking ahead. He was looking with a long-term vision to what came ahead. He was looking ahead to his heavenly reward. And then verse 17 and 18, Paul says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now verse 17 is a bit strange, isn't it? So this idea of being, a, being poured out as a drink offering. Now in the, the Greco-Roman world and also in the Old Testament Jewish culture, there were drink offerings. And they were somewhat similar. So in, in pagan cultures, you would have an animal sacrifice and you would bring to the sacrifice and slaughter it on the altar. Its blood would be over the altar and you would do this to appease the pagan god that you worshipped. And then you would uh, burn the animal sacrifice on the altar. And then at the end of the, the uh, sacrifices, it's more or less burned up at this point, then you would take a drink offering, usually wine or oil, and you would take that, and you would pour that over the altar. And as you did that, there would be steam, and it would come up. And it was almost symbolic of saying, well, now this fragrant offering is now going up to the nostrils of the deity of whom it was being sacrificed. And here Paul is saying that the, when you look at, again, look at 17... What he's saying here is the Philippians now, they are the actual animal sacrifice. So they're the real sacrifice. And he's saying he's just the drink offering or just kind of the, the, the topping or kind of the, the last step to the sacrifice. 
And I think part of what Paul's doing here is he's, he's expressing humility as we've seen throughout this letter, as we've seen especially in Philippians chapter 2, is he is deferring his ministry and his work to that of theirs, saying that they're the real sacrifice. He's just the drink offering. But yet, they're part of the same sacrificial offering. They are to be working together. They are, they are doing it together. And Paul's saying that with their sacrifice should come great joy. And that's a, that's a bit counterintuitive, I think, that, that sacrifice would equal joy. I mean, in our day and age, I mean, it's all about getting ease and comfort and pleasure and, and avoiding any sort of suffering. I mean, that, that's what the world does. That's what the world trains us to do. That's what our flesh, that's what we want. But what Paul is saying is that with greater sacrifice comes greater joy. And Hebrews 12.2 gives us the ultimate example of this, and that's in Jesus. Because Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. The greatest sacrifice that could ever be made resulted in the greatest joy that could ever be given. And I think, unfortunately, most of us, we don't know great joy because we know nothing of great sacrifice. So what have we sacrificed for the kingdom of Christ? What have you said no to for the sake of Christ and his church? What might Christ be calling you to sacrifice for him? Should you be giving more financially to the work of Christ? Oftentimes, I think a direct link to our heart is, or the quickest look at our heart could be seen through the eyes of our bank statements. Jesus said, for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Maybe it's sacrificing some of your time away from entertainment to spend it with another believer to encourage them in Christ. Or maybe sacrificing an evening of rest to spend it with an unbelieving neighbor or coworker, and to maybe have dinner with them to share the love of Christ with them. So now in closing, the Lord would have us this morning to one, follow the example of the Philippians and obey the teaching of the Bible. So always obey. Two, to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. To strive toward godliness, to fight sin, to pursue holiness. Point three, that working out our salvation with fear and trembling at least means to do everything without grumbling or disputing. To stop complaining, to stop whining. This is a sin that we see, based upon the history of the Israelites, the Lord takes very seriously. And point four, let us be willing, like the Philippians and Paul, to offer our lives as living sacrifices unto the Lord. That we would be willing to make sacrifices for the Lord Jesus, not just for sacrifice, not for just the sake of making a sacrifice, but for the sake of our joy and for the sake of God and His glory. Let's pray.